The Canucks take a pause with the end of their season in sight. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always on a Friday by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers excavators and loaders from avenue machinery visit avenue machinery.ca officially in the final month of the regular season the final calendar month of april of the regular season drancer and uh, lo and behold last night the canucks already extremely extremely slim playoff chances took another blow because the the stars picked up two points against the anaheim ducks and if the writing was already on the wall, now it's kind of being outlined in Sharpie or graffiti or something for the Canucks because they need some teams to start losing if they have any hopes of resuscitating their playoff chances. And the Stars took, took care of business against Anaheim last night. Yeah, and um, then the Stars don't have to be very good at this point nope. to just make, to make the playoffs uh, an impossible bar for the Canucks. Honestly, at this point, you're probably looking at the Kings as the better route in. And that's to say that there is no real route in, no, unfortunately, the, the, for the Canucks. The, but, King, the Kings won last night, too, against Calgary in the shootout. So. Yeah, but interestingly, Vancouver's playoff odds unchanged <laughs> at this point because now it's not really, I mean, yes, other things have to happen ahead of them, but their slim 3% playoff odds per Dom Decisions model are, are no longer based on what happens in front of them? It's based on like, well, maybe there's a chance if Vancouver can go eleven and one. Yeah. <laughs> so to some extent, the pressure is almost off the scoreboard. Watching, it's like, can you win every game the rest of the way out? Probably not. Almost surely not. I think this is a pipe dream. But nonetheless, at this point, it's really not about the teams around them because there is no realistic route. It's can this team pull off a miracle? Mm-hmm. And that's really the only remaining suspense in this playoff chase. I don't think this is a miracle group. I don't think this is the group that has, you know, I saw Bruce Boudreau talking about the ele- uh, the Capitals team that went 11 and 1 to sneak into the playoffs in his first year there. And then they proceeded to be the best team in hockey for a decade and win a Stanley Cup, right? I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't I know I have a lot of time for Pedersen and Demko and and Hughes and some of the players here, but the greatest goal scorer of my lifetime I don't see him on the roster, right? Like, this is very different from that Capitals, upstart Capitals team that went on to, you know, crush the league for 10 years, in my opinion. And I'm not expecting a miracle finish from this group. I don't think there's enough depth here. I don't think there's good enough vibes, right? Like, I don't think this is a miracle group. I'm not betting on a miracle by any means. In fact, I was never even betting on the long shot Um, for a reason, right? For a reason. I just, I don't see this group as having that type of close in them. And in fact, I think they're in tough with two straight games against the Vegas Golden Knights this week. And at which point, and maybe even now, we'll, we'll be talking about the long term for this club. Well, and that's it's an interesting spot in the season right now because, yes, they are not mathematically eliminated. And as we all know, the staff, the team, the players, certainly, they are not going to give up the chase until they are, in fact, mathematically eliminated. We all know that's how it works. And look, we still want to... I think acknowledge that and and respect that to a degree and cover the games themselves as if they matter because to the players and the coaches, they certainly do matter still and in the fans. standings and for fans, of course. Right. Yeah. So y- you want to acknowledge that and you want to be respectful of that. But we're also in this spot where, you know, they have a three day break uh, before they play Vegas on Sunday. It's a day off for them today on Friday. And it's kind of natural given the spot they're in, given the number of games left in the regular season to start 
turning an eye at least towards the offseason. And we'll have plenty of time uh, to tackle this more over the next few months, of course. But, you know, just kind of sitting down and, and prepping for the show this morning, Drancer, I was just kind of thinking, okay, like what are what are we, we know the generalities, but what are some of the big specific things the Canucks need to tackle going into the offseason whenever their season does end here? And what really struck me, and we'll get into some of those specifics, but the to-do list for Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford and their new front office is massive. And that, that shouldn't come as a surprise because we've talked a lot about the kind of structural flaws on this team and not just the flaws with the roster, but the lack of draft picks, the lack of prospects, the cap space, all of that. But you just start kind of checking off the things that need to be sorted out in you know this summer when the season ends all of that going into next year's training camp and i mean now you can add something like the coaching situation right which is unsettled at the moment going into next year that's something that has to be dealt with uh they have to find a way to clear an awful lot of cap space and there's multiple different avenues that they can choose to pursue to do that they need to figure out brock besser's contract situation right they need to decide what they're doing with jt miller those are two top six wingers obviously in jt miller's case one of the most productive players in the nhl this season, and they have to make a very, very big decision there. And then you get down to the kind of nitty-gritty. They need to add depth. They need to uh, add more players on the blue line, add more players in the bottom six and flesh that group out. They need to figure out what they're doing with their backup goaltending. And there, there's just so much that you can look at and say, oh, that that that's a priority area, right? That's something that really needs to be figured out. And I, I do want to run through those uh, a, a lot of those here in just a second. But the other thing just kind of struck me is, I mean, realistically – you know, how much of a to-do list is too much of a to-do list, right? Like, is there a limit to just how much surgery can be done on this team in the offseason? How much of an overhaul we could see? And I don't even mean in terms of, you know, improving the team for a playoff push, but just in general, reshaping the state of the franchise, reshaping the direction of the franchise, because you start to add it up. And man, that is an awful lot to accomplish uh, for a new front office taking over this team in potentially the span of, of just a few months this summer. Well, you also think about all the change over, you, over you've had in multiple, like consecutive off-seasons, you've made a tremendous volume of, of changes to this roster and started slow twice, right? Not a coincidence. You know, it's not a coincidence that a team that's had the amount of turnover that the Canucks have had in consecutive seasons, including the departures of really respected veterans, guys like Edler, guys like Toffoli, guys like Markstrom, guys like Tanev, um, you know, has then come out and started slow out of the gate, right? Uh, not a coincidence. So do you have to be careful with that if your goal is to make the playoffs next year? I think you do. I, I honestly think if your goal is to make the playoffs next season, you have to be really circumspect about how much change you're going to introduce for a third consecutive offseason for a deeply unsettled, underachieving club. And yet... You know, I, I think if you decide that, in fact, the playoffs are a nice to have, but not a primary goal of this offseason, I think this organization needs massive, a massive overhaul in just about every area. Why don't we why don't we play this game like this, Jamie? Yeah. Why don't you why don't you go through your laundry list yeah. and be like the Canucks need to upgrade X, say it. And then, and then I'll chime in and disagree, and we can debate it from there. Okay. How about that? So the first, yes. Play, we'll, do, we'll play a game. We'll, we'll play do a game. that. We'll do that. The other thing I want to say is just your point about okay. looking at a team that needs 
lots of changes, but also being wary of this having this constant churn and just constant instability. I, that is such a kind of classic sports franchise dilemma. And I, I always think of teams in the NFL in this context, right? Like you think of a team like, like the Jets or the Jaguars, and they're changing their coach every two years. And it's like, well, how are you ever going to have a stable environment to grow your program, to grow your franchise when you're changing your leadership so often? But on the other hand, you don't want Urban Meyer coaching your team, right? You don't want Adam Gase to be the coach of your team. So you get put in this really difficult position where the foundation isn't working, so you think you need to make changes, but you're also cognizant of constantly making changes, in fact, undermine some of the things you're trying to do as well. It's an extremely difficult needle to thread, and I think it's a good point you bring up that, yeah, there's been lots and lots of changes to this team, and I think you can point directly to some of those changes uh, as one of the reasons they've maybe underachieved over the last couple of years. But that's but that doesn't mean you can just you know stand pat obviously as well. So that that to me is one of the most interesting kind of philosophical dilemmas uh, that the team has ahead of itself. It's really really difficult to strike that balance where you're making the necessary changes, but you're not completely throwing your franchise and your players into flux while doing it. All right, so let's go through some of the uh, the off season priorities or the off season laundry list to do list uh, for the Canucks going in to this offseason and and the one we'll, we'll get to a bunch i'm not going to do this in priority order necessarily or anything like that but one of the most interesting ones to me and it was a name we talked about a lot going into the trade deadline it is brock besser and specifically how to navigate the brock besser qualifying offer situation which we all know there he's going to be due a qualifying offer of 7.5 million and you look at you know where that would rank among wingers in the NHL and you look at Brock Besser's production this year and you think wow that's that's not a particularly appetizing number to have to offer him there's been talk that maybe they would be interested in trying to trade Brock Besser but that has you know that can be significantly complicated as well because other teams feel the same way about his qualifying offer situation and the more I kind of think about this it's just really hard to find the clear, obvious, easy solution that makes all parties happy here, right? Is it is it term for Besser? Is it short term? Is it he plays the, the this year on the qualifying offer, and then you see where you stand next year? There, this is a, there's a reason it's been been such a dilemma and, and been such a talking point because there's no clear, obvious solution. I'm interested to get your perspective on what the Canucks' goal should be here, and maybe also what you think the likely outcome of the Brock Besser situation is. Well, I mean, the most likely outcome for me is either that he accepts the $7.5 million qualifying offer or that the club doesn't qualify him and allows him to go to unrestricted free agency or like the three, the third one would be that he agrees to a contract extension beforehand, right? That, that is a little more team friendly. And for me, there's actually a very obvious solution when you're talking about Brock Besser. That's my opinion. I think there is a clear path forward a clear preferred result that the club should be aiming for here. And that is a long-term extension at, you know, something like six and a half million, right? A, a, a long-term, whether it's four or five years, whether it's three years, whatever, you're looking for something in the six to six and a half range, if you can do it. And I think you structure the deal so that it's front-loaded so that Besser makes the 7.5 million in salary right off the hop, Right. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, and it is. Do not get me wrong. It is a lot. But when you look through forwards who are signed for next season, for example, right? Six and a half million, and this is like not in counting any UFAs who sign at the next, next little bit. 
um, 6.5 million is the 59th highest, like 59th through 56th highest cap hit for forwards in the NHL right now, right? And that includes some really good value deals like Chris Kreider's. <laughs> and it includes some less good value deals like Brendan Gallagher, although Brendan Gallagher is for sure going to bounce back. So that's sort of the range you're looking at. Well, if you look at the last three seasons, Brock Besser is 61st in the NHL in goal scored. So that's roughly the right range, right? 6.5 million is what you're looking at and saying, hey, that makes sense. That's good market value. 7.5, on the other hand, is, you know, the 34th and 35th and 36th highest paid forwards in the league. Um, I don't think Besser's production would warrant that. So for me, the best outcome here is that the Canucks sign a long-term deal for Brock Besser prior to the qualifying offer deadline. You come to that extension uh, or come to that agreement, and then you take it, take a look and see how he plays next year. But, I mean, the challenge is, is that, you know, you see you see how he does. You give him a ton of minutes with Elias Pettersson. Maybe you move him back to the flank. You let him rebuild his value a little bit. Right now, with this situation hanging over Brock Besser, he's like a distressed stock. He's a really good player. But in terms of his trade value, it far it is far below his actual on-ice value to any team in the league because of the uncertainty that comes attached to the QO situation. So the way to navigate it to maximize Vancouver's like long-term interests from a value perspective is to, is to get an extension done in and around that six and a half million dollar range, whether it's three, whether it's five years, whatever you, you, you try, you just try and get some certainty on it. You try and Jake DeBrusque the situation. Um, and then, uh, and then you are left to figure it out beyond that. Uh, but for me, Brock Besser is a classic hold, and the way to maximize the value, the future value to the club, whether or not you see Besser as a core piece going forward or not, is to hold the stock, um, create some certainty around it by, by doing a long-term deal, and then giving him a, a season next year to begin to rebuild his value, and then you can make a decision when you're on far stronger footing. For me, there's actually a very clear best-case scenario outcome for this team. With Brock so the interesting, I, because I agree with you that that would be the best case scenario from a Canucks perspective, is that, and it's hard to tell, right? We don't know, we don't have any special insight into what the player is thinking or his management is thinking, his agent or anything like that. But my question is always, how much interest would that have for Besser when he also knows he has these juicy qualifying offers potentially sitting on the table that could help him get to free agency, unrestricted free agency, even faster than that. And I know it's rare to see an NHL player really do the aggressive bet on myself, take the qualifying offer, and then try to hit a home run on a larger contract down the line. I know Patrick Laine has done it. With Besser, it would be a little unique because he would need to take the qualifying offer for two years consecutively, right? And before yeah. he became a full unrestricted, unrestricted free agent. So it adds a little bit more uncertainty, but it all is always just kind of in my ba the back of my head there, right? Like, if you offer him him, you know, four by 6.5, which I think would be a really good deal from a Canucks perspective. Does Besser sit that, sit that and look well and basically say, well, I could basically do two, two years for 15 million total and then be an unrestricted free agent and try to make up, you know, the 9 million or whatever that I would be getting on that four-year deal when I hit unrestricted free agency. And, and look, hockey players generally will take the security. They will take the term when it's there, when it's offered to them. But that's just always been the question for me is, is that going to be, I understand why it would be appealing from a Canucks perspective. Will it be appealing enough from Besser's perspective to get him to forego the qualifying offer this offseason? I think that's the kind of interesting question there.
it is but i mean if you think about it the way like yes if when you look at it as like 15 plus 9 it looks one way but it's really 7.5 plus 7.5 yes. and you're betting on yourself to remain healthy and you're potentially leaving a bunch of money on the table whereas if you structure the deal to be front loaded so that it pays you 7.5 million in salary you're not even feeling it right you're not even feeling the potential downside in the first year of the deal and then you go you know you have to structure it creatively from there so that you are both legal in terms of the way that you've structured it and that Besser's protected and you know you're you're getting the what was it the amount you said was 26 million you're getting the 26 sure million if you if you go yeah four by six point five yeah. right away and then and then also you know from Besser's perspective right you can be a UFA in two years, which would be t the off season of 2024, or you can be a, a UFA in 2025, 2026 with a, with a deal that, you know, guarantees you some security and you know, the cap's going to be going up at that point. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that gives you a chance to be the NHL's version of Timofey Mozgov, which is, you know, the, that should be the goal of every player. I don't know if people understand this, but when the I NBA's yeah. when the NBA's cap exploded, Timofey Mozgov signed like a fifteen million dollar deal, and everyone was like scratching their head. And it made sense because that was the cap's the cap. He just he just hit unrestricted free agency at exactly the right moment. Right? There's someone in the NHL right now is the NHL's version of Timofey Mozgov, and in a world where we truly have put the pandemic behind us and the NHLPA has paid off their debts to the owners. There's going to be somebody who signs for, you know, 9 million and you're just going to be like, who? What? Excuse me? And and as far as I'm concerned, every player in the league's goal should be to be the next team of the NHL's team of fame, <laughs> Mozgov. Maybe it could be Brock with a three or four year deal. That would be part of the pitch to him if, if I was the Canucks. But yeah, it's a definitely a complicated situation. I do think the security there, particularly if you structure the deal creatively to give him some upfront money so that he's not even taking a bath by foregoing the qualifying offer route that's that's the that's the way forward for me my question my, my sort of bigger question is not you know how what's the optimal way to approach this from a Canucks perspective it's do they care as much about maximizing value in the in the horse trader way that I'm discussing or do they care about or do they care more about structuring it so that they create the best possible fit hockey wise for their team next season because those are two very different questions and depending on your priorities could dictate very different approaches with Besser himself yeah and the other interesting one you mentioned it just uh, kind of in passing when we started the Besser conversation but the the possibility that the team chooses not to qualify him and lets him become an unrestricted free agent this summer that would that would be very surprising to me, uh, and I think it would be a big shock to a lot of Canucks fans as well. I don't well, know. I don't know if you want to, to put odds clear, on it or percentage, but no, it, it, do I, you see I a realistic think, possibility there? No, no, I don't okay. think they're going to do it. Okay, I don't. I don't. I think they're going to protect their interests here, but I do think there is very limited appetite to see Besser cost them seven point five no. million. And yeah. I think when you. I think the moment you qualify him, if you get to the qualifying offer deadline without an extension done or a trade done prior to it, I think you have to know the the moment that happens that, you know, the the prospect of him just accepting it is very, very high, inordinately high, um, just because it is a huge number. And and I think the club would be very reluctant to, to put themselves in into that spot. 
Um, I don't think I don't think they would I, they would actually go down the road of not qualifying him. I think they'd understand that they have to protect their interests in that in that situation. But um, you know, it is it is something to keep in the back of your mind. It's not outside the realm of what's realistic. And I guess the the kind of worst case scenario there is, as you said, he he's essentially a distressed stock right now. Is that you end up trading him for another team's distressed stock that, as you said, kind of maybe fits your your stylistic vision of the team a little bit better and that strikes me as probably more likely than the kind of doomsday scenario of of walking away altogether but yeah I think we're in agreement that as tricky as it will be best case scenario for the Canucks is to find a way to get him to an extension uh, with some sort of term and then again even if your preference would be to replace Besser in your top six with a, with a forward who brings some different attributes. You're be, you'll be in a better position to potentially do that down the road once he rebuilds some of his value and once he has a little bit of cost certainty as well. All right, as we continue to work through the kind of off-season to-do list, the one that I think is has become pretty interesting is the team's backup goaltending situation because we have now played out two years in a row, right, where the team has brought in established veteran goalies who are used to playing a significant number of games in their career and who performed extremely admirably in their career in Braden Holtby and Yara Halak. And in both seasons, those those moves have not worked out as either the team or the player would have liked, right? And, of course, Braden Holtby ends up being bought out. Yara Halak is an unrestricted free agent after this year. Now, the interesting thing about both of those situations, Drancer, as you well know, of course, is not only do they not work out from an on-ice perspective, as the team would have preferred, they're going to be paying. They're going to have money dedicated to both of those players on their salary cap sheet for next year, right? Braden Holtby because of the buyout and Yaro Halak because of the bonuses, which we have discussed at length. Uh, that he's earned. So it, it puts the Canucks in a really interesting position because you still don't, I, I still don't think they can, you know, just capitulate and go into next year knowing that Thatcher Demko is going to start 60 plus games, right? You still have to have a plan in place that can adequately manage his workload and ideally get him into that kind of 55 appearances, uh, you know, realm. But you're already paying a bunch of dead money for backup goalies of the past, and I'm not sure realistically how much the club is going to want to allocate to that spot on the roster again this year. So you're kind of in a position where the bringing in, you know, a, a relatively well-paid veteran backup goalie, I'm not sure how much how, how appealing that's going to be for the Canucks, but you also want to have some sort of certainty behind Thatcher Demko going into next year as well. I'm expecting Spencer Martin to be the Canucks' backup next season. I think the organization views him as having earned that shot, a, a chance to play at the NHL level. Um, he's, you know, been splitting the net over the course of the past month with Mike DiPietro, but prior to that was playing far more frequently. I mean, I think they're at 8-7 and seven over the month of March, but if you look at, uh, like, February, for example, right? You know, DiPietro made four starts and. Um, Spencer Martin made seven, right? So uh, pretty clear who's the number one guy who's going to be the starter on day one of the Calder Cup playoffs for the Abbotsford Canucks. And I think that's going to tell you everything. You cannot afford to go expensive in net, especially in a world where like right now the average backup in the in the league Jamie makes $2 million. Do you know who that average backup is? It's Braden Holpe. Yeah. Right? Braden Holpe is 47th among NHL goaltenders in um in sort of cap hit so that to me makes him the average backup right like the 15th highest paid non-starter basically 
Um, so $2 million, that's average backup salary these days, right? That's why people talk about like the Jacob Morazic contract being immovable. And it's like, well, he's kind of paid like a backup, right? Backups cost three and a half million dollars, $2 million, two and a half million these days. So especially really good backups. And obviously the Canucks are going to have ended up spending all told, uh, you know, 2.75 on Halak as, as an illustration. So the fact is, is that the Canucks cannot afford to go and play in that market. They just can't. It's just you have too much dead money in goal to go out and get the type of, you know, to, to be bidding for a Ville Husso or a, or a Jack Campbell on, on the free agent market. You, you need to go and be efficient in that spot in particular. I think it's going to be Spencer Martin. I think he'll be the Canucks backup next season. And yeah, I think using him an appropriate amount. Like first of all, it's definitely a risk considering his track record, mm-hmm. but but you know, he's also done enough that I think you'd feel comfortable with that so long as the price point is right. Um, you know, he should be able to give you what Yaroslav Halak has given you roughly and you know, do so at a at a rate that doesn't create long-term problems doesn't have a cap hit that extends a year beyond and and you know allows you to be super efficient in net especially with Demko on a five million dollar hit so that's what I'm expecting um I think that's you know in line with the organization's thinking I've previously reported at the athletic that the club was prepared to look ahead to Spencer Martin in the event that they'd traded Halak and and I think that was uh, you know, that's an item that wasn't just for the balance of this season, but was beyond. I'm expecting Spencer Martin to get a long look uh, and a real shot to be Vancouver's backup next year. Yeah, I should mention uh, Spencer Martin will be on the station in just a couple hours uh, on the People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda. So make sure you tune into that conversation as well with the Abbotsford Canucks netminder. Now, I, I would predict that's the way it goes as well, given what he showed in his taste of NHL action, given how he's performed with the Abbotsford Canucks. He is a UFA but you would certainly expect the Canucks to have the kind of inside edge in getting him locked up, especially if they're saying, hey, we really like you. You can come in and be – you have a very, very good shot to be the backup goalie and play a healthy chunk of games behind Thatcher Demko next year. That, that should give them you know, a pretty comfortable path uh, to getting Spencer Martin locked up next year, you would think, as well. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard occasionally that that deal's all but done. That's been repudiated by – um, both sides. So, um, you know, I don't know that my intel was off there so much as it, no one's prepared to really talk about it. But I, I think you're you're going to be able to extend Spencer Martin at a, a relatively team friendly rate. Um, you know, this is a player who I don't believe he's even on a two way NHL contract this year or a one way NHL contract this year. Right. So for players in that Spencer Martin class, typically speaking, even just getting that one-way NHL deal uh, and, you know, actually looking through it, uh, Spencer Martin has at no point in his career had a one-way NHL contract. So to be guaranteed a one-way NHL salary, um, you know, that's a huge win for a player who's really fared quite remarkably for the Canucks, particularly when you consider that the deal he's on now was signed by the Lightning to give them, like, for protection reasons (laughs) at the expansion draft, he was dealt for literally nothing. Yeah. He was acquired for free, and he's now put himself on the verge of getting 
certainly a one-way NHL contract and, and sort of being the front runner to be a, a, an NHL backup next season. It's been a really remarkable season for the 26-year-old uh, from Oakville. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it certainly has, and uh, I'm excited to hear Spencer Martin uh, on the station, as I said, in a couple hours on the People Show with Vic and Randeep. Lots more to get into as we do kind of an overview of the Canucks offseason here on the Canucks Hour. Don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. We will continue to break down some of the most pressing business for the Canucks to take care of now with the end of the regular season in sight in the NHL. It is the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Final segment of the week before the weekend uh, here on the Canucks Hour. I hope everyone is looking forward to the weekend. Of course, the Canucks will play Sunday against Vegas. And look, as I said off the top of the show, Drancer, we are certainly not writing off the rest of the games on the Canucks schedule. We're not interested in doing that. But look, it's a day off for the team. They're not <laughs> They're not skating today. You know, they didn't play last night. They don't play tomorrow. It's a little bit of a mini pause here before this final stretch of the season. So what we did in the first segment, what we'll continue to do here is start to look forward to uh, some of the items on the to-do list for Patrick Alvine and Jim Rutherford. We talked about Brock Besser. We talked about the backup goaltending situation. And the one I'm going to throw at you here, and it, it has been a very, very frequent topic of discussion for us, certainly for our colleagues here on 650, our, coll- our colleagues at other outlets in this media market, uh, but also for the Canucks leadership themselves, right? For Patrick Alvine and Jim Rutherford. And that, of course, is the question of how to create meaningful salary cap flexibility for this team going forward, which is such a pressing issue for the Canucks if they are going to start to build towards being a legitimate, sustainable contender in the NHL. Now, a lot of that conversation has tended to focus on, you know, JT Miller, uh, Brock Besser, who we talked about, right, in his qualifying offer, Connor Garland to a certain degree, maybe Bo Horvat in there, although I think there's a, a recognition that Bo Horvat is likely sticking around for a lot longer than just what's left on his deal. I, I want to just look a little bit beyond those kind of you know, headlining names, especially JT Miller. Don't worry, there will be plenty of occasion for us to break down the JT Miller situation at length uh, in the coming weeks and months on this station. But looking beyond some of those, well, hey, you know, they could they could trade JT Miller and that would free up a whole bunch of cap space to some of the more difficult or maybe the situations that would require a little bit extra creativity to clear cap space. Are there names or or potential strategies that really stand out to you as something that the Canucks will or should be pursuing as they continue to find ways uh, to clean up the salary cap situation on this team? Everything has to be on the table, Jamie, for this club in clearing cap space. And I think it's clear that you need to move at least one of your highly paid wingers, right? You need to reallocate cap space away from your top six wings into other areas of your defense or uh, defense uh, other areas of your team especially with you know the way that we've seen this defensive group function this season but also the way that the bottom six has struggled so mightily Um, you know you look through for example how this team has fared over the last 11 games and at five on five you know dating back 11 games so this is really the stretch that cost the Canucks any realistic shot at the playoffs right um with one of Yuho Lamico or Brad Richardson on the ice 
at five on five, the Canucks were outscored six to 12. And that's it. That's your whole season right there. Done. Done. So upgrading that is going to be essential. And I don't see how you do it without moving off some top six money. So you've got Besser. You have to, you know, budget 7.5 million for him next season. You've got JT Miller, 5.25. You've got Carner Garland, 4.95. I think one of those at least has to be jettisoned. I still think it would be very tempting to move off all three if you can get the type of value back that you want. And, and I sort of bring that up within the context of that, you know, Florida Panthers model, right? Where they traded Trocek, they walked away from Hoffman, they walked away from Evgeny Dadnov. And that was the cap space that they used to chase Vinny Anastrosa and Carter Verhage and claim a bunch of defensemen off waivers, one of whom became Gustav Forsling and Anthony Declare. And, you know, th th there were some misses in there too, Ryan Lomberg. But, like, go value shopping. That, that's sort of what I'd, I'd – that's honestly the number one tactic that I'd recommend for the Canucks would be move off all of that money, and then you're looking at having almost $30 million in cap space this offseason, and then – you also have the assets you get back. Now you can play uh, in a more meaningful sort of pool in terms of really fundamentally altering the DNA of this roster and, you know, what you can hope to do in the years ahead. So before, I think, before, I think hold on, before sorry, we go yeah. any farther, because I think that's a really interesting thought. And I think as much as it would kind of leave all of our heads spinning, right? And we talked off the top of the show about, you know, striking the balance between making meaningful change, but also keeping some sort of sense of stability around the organization. I do think it's a really fascinating prospect to explore trading all of Miller, Garland, or Besser. Again, provided the value is there, provided you're getting the kind of assets back that you need in those or, trades. Or even if it's not, or even right. if it's not. Right. Honestly, in terms of even if it's cap. not. From your, yeah. from your understanding, I mean, how appetizing do you think that kind of extreme surgery would be from a Canucks perspective? Like, is that something that we're just kicking around as, you know, talking heads on the radio because it would be really interesting and really exciting? Or do you think that there's like a realistic chance of that level of change coming down for this team? Well, there's a reason those names have been out there in in trade rumors and speculation and reporting for months right and it's because you know at the very least it's not a option that the organization can afford not to consider right, right? I, I mean honestly it's it's not it's not i don't think it's the most likely course of action but i think it's a course of action that's too it makes too much sense to not at least explore what it would look like and what the return might be be for some of those pieces and and especially with where this team is positioned right they're going to miss the playoffs in an all-in season no meaningful cap flexibility right they have breathing room to flesh out the roster but they don't have meaningful cap flexibility no significant prospects uh don't have a full arsenal of draft picks this year and you know they're 11th in the west and and probably going to finish you know fifth in the in the pacific um you need to consider some extreme moves in, in those circumstances. And in the case of Brock Besser, we know how complicated the situation is with his QO. In the case of JT Miller, we know that he's going to cost an awful lot to extend. And in the case of Connor Garland, I think there's real questions about how his game fits within the template of what Rutherford wants to see his teams accomplish. So, as you sort of go down the list, yeah, I don't think this is completely pie in the sky. And and for me, honestly, it would be the vision I'd be selling. Like, if you can net the type of assets, if you can 
you know, net a good future asset and attach, say, a Dickinson contract to, uh, to Garland and, and move that off, that would sort of be like the reverse OEL trade, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and using Garland as a carrot to get off of bad money. Although, you know, Dickinson doesn't really compare with the Oliver Ekman Larson no. liability. And, you know, if you could do something like that, if you could move Besser for, you know, an RFA type that maybe fits your, your system a little bit better, whether it's a Kasperi Kapanen or, you know, maybe a Jesper Brad as part of a larger deal, one of those guys who's a similar RFA with a significant case, right? Um, you know, and maybe has a little bit more speed. And then if you can move JT Miller for, for the type of package that, you know, Canucks fans were drooling about for months, maybe, maybe not, you know, 80 cents on, 80 cents on that dollar, um, is that worth it? Is that worth it considering that you come out of that series of moves with something like $25 million in cap space to then go value hunting, um, you know, to, to take on a bad contract? Like, can you get a, a significant future from a team that's looking to dump their own overpriced deal? Uh, is that player the type of guy who can help your third line, right? I mean, can you do these sorts of things that help you now and in the future? Can you go and begin to accrue value in every move the way that this team's going to need to if they're going to catch up to the likes of Vegas, you know, and Calgary and Edmonton in the short and LA in the short term, and then LA and Anaheim too, uh, you know, the, the juggernauts that loom on the horizon uh, with significant young talent on their rosters, a, a level of young talent that completely dwarfs what Vancouver has coming through their pipeline. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the, that's the delicate balance you have to have to strike. I think there's a way forward if you can carve out sufficient cap space to do it. Um, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, I'm always so laser focused on a team like Florida, but the, it doesn't need to be a team like Florida. It could be, you know, a, a Carolina or, or whatever. I mean, Carolina's got, for example, a guy like Jesper Fast, who plays bottom six minutes making $2 million next season. Is that something, you know, that they'd find convenient to get off of so that they could open up something else, right? Uh, you, you sort of go down the list and there's all sorts, uh, Jake Gardner, would they pay you to take Jake Gardner's contract, even though it's on LTI? Um, you know, can you use the Michael Furland contract in a trade like the Chicago Blackhawks did with, uh, with the Brent Seabrook contract to a team like Tampa Bay or, or to a team like Toronto, who knows they're going to be an LTI or a team like Minnesota and net value that way. I mean, all of these things open up if you have cap flexibility and that would sort of be, you know, that that's why cap space was such a crucial talking point for this organization ahead of the deadline and it's why it'll continue to be as we enter the offseason and the two things that strike me about the possibility of that path right the real kind of extreme the far end of the spectrum in terms of offloading established valuable players right because there's really two mm -hmm. things we're talking about there's valuable players that you know teams would be willing to give you assets for and then it's kind of the second tier or the third tier of well it's going to be tricky to get off those players and if we're talking about the extreme version of giving up the valuable assets the two things that stand out to me i think is one it would be very natural for i think a lot of fans to hear oh the team has traded miller uh besser and connor garland and think oh wow this is going to be a three or four year rebuild right like they're they're setting up to really go in the tank here and try to and, and kicking the can down the road and i don't think it has to be that right because of no. all the all the different strategies you're talking about it does not you can make moves of that significance 
and still try to at least kind of hold where you are right now for next year and have an eye to turning things around as soon as, you know, the season after that and start taking real meaningful progress because it gives you the ability to add so many, to take so many different bets on your roster, right? And add interesting players, undervalued guys in free agency and all of that. It doesn't have to be a major four or five year rebuilding plan, even if you are giving up some very, very good players no, in Miller, well, and, Besser, and Garland. Go ahead. And, but but it's also about carving out the space. If you carve yeah. out that space, then all of a sudden, you know, what can you get from Florida to take Patrick Hornquist, right? And and by the way, Hornquist, who has a relationship with Rutherford in the past, like you throw him on a third line, you know, he can still do it. He's gigantic. He's perfect for the net front, right? He's a righty to be at the net front. He's, he's basically immovable there. You know, he's a he's a super competitive Stanley Cup winning Swede. What kind of impact would he have on Elias Pettersson? I mean, is that the type of guy you could bring in for culture reasons? And if you had the flexibility, he might actually help you win games in the short term. And you could probably net an asset to do it. Um, you know, Michael Furlan's contract, I think, is a really fascinating opportunity, particularly because it would then allow the Canucks to toll daily cap space and take advantage of what they've got in Abbotsford to the f- for fullest extent. You know, Furland had previously been willing to waive his no, I think it's a no trade clause, in order to go to Vegas in, in um, the Nate Schmidt deal, right? There was a formulation of the Nate Schmidt trade that originally included Michael Furland's contract. Ultimately, Vegas wanted too much to make, it, to make that happen. But, you know, Vegas is a team we know is over the cap, Right with yep. the the Dadnov situation, Lafair Dadnov, um, <laughs> you know, sort of sort of looming large, and there's some really interesting pieces that are sort of remaining on that roster. Like if you took the Dadnov salary back, you know, for Furland, for example, right? That I mean, that's a five million dollar commitment for you for next season, um, and, but and but you'd be giving off Furland, who they could use as the LT ideal. And his and and although the deal's uninsured, it, it's back diving, so it's only like two point five million. So they just, they'd be saving real money too. Could you then, you know, get a Nick Wah back in the in the trade, or or maybe a Dylan Coughlin, Duncan's Dylan Coughlin, right? Who's um, who's a right-handed twenty-four-year-old defenseman, like sort of in that Travis Dermott mold, like fast, moves the puck, has played a ton of minutes for them, works really hard. Uh, as anyone from Duncan does, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, the uh, the fact is, is there's a ton of options that open up to you if you can clear sufficient cap space. And it's why, you know, people talk about the Canucks having 17 million and, and that's, you know, or, or 16 and a half million, basically, with the cap going up to 82.6. And it could be a little lower or a little bit less. It could be a little bit more. But that's not real flexibility. Like real flexibility is 25 plus. And if you can carve out 25 plus prior to the draft, then you can begin to solve problems for other teams and in so doing, potentially make the types of trades that might make you a better, more likable, um, sturdier group both next season and net the types of futures that can help you down the line as well. And that's what I'd like to see in terms of an overall approach from this, this organization. Something similar to what the Florida Panthers did when, when Bill Zito first came in where you, it's not that you take a step back, it's that you have the courage to walk away from big commitments on your books now and find more affordable solutions that give you the flexibility to have a brighter, have brighter days ahead. And that, that to me is, that to me is the test here 
for Canucks management, it's a really hard tightrope to walk. But if they can do it, I think you can create an environment where, or you can achieve what I think this group needs, which isn't a full tear it down rebuild, but it is, you know, restocking, reloading what you've got over a 18 to 24 month timeline so that you're able to still find a way to contend in, you know, the, the early prime years uh, of Pedersen and Hughes' time in Vancouver, not to mention on Demko's current value contract. Well, and the other thing about, you know, potentially going that route, trading Miller, trading Besser, trading Connor Garland, is not only does just doing that free up a whole bunch of salary cap space, right, and relieve you of a, of a bunch of potential commitments on your books next year, but I think it could also set up kind of a virtual, a virtuous cycle, I should say, where doing that, opens up avenues to you freeing up other cap space, right? Because, you know, you look at a player like Tanner Pearson or Tyler Myers, right? And still useful NHL players, but are you going to be able to get another team to take them at the full freight of their deal and clear that all of that space? Well, probably not. But if you are able to attach an asset of some sort, then maybe you could, right? The problem is, as we've detailed, the Canucks don't have a lot of extra picks. The Canucks don't have a lot of extra young players, if you trade yeah, Garland, they're asset poor. They're, they're asset, asset poor. poor. If you trade yeah. Besser, Miller, and Garland, that potentially, again, depending, making sure the value is there, that potentially goes a long way to restocking your assets and making you much less asset poor. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes a lot uh, less daunting to think about attaching an asset to move off some of your, your other bad salary, right? And as you said, it also frees up cap space to go collect other assets. So it is, it's not just that you're opening up that cap space, it's also giving you the ability to do lots of other things in that line of thinking, right? Whether it's using that cap space to take assets from other team, whether it's attaching assets to get off of even other uh, other contracts that you don't want on your books anymore. It's, it's kind of a launching pad to being able to do a lot of different things. And as you said, no doubt about it, it takes a lot of courage to go down that route. It takes a ton of courage to go down that route. But I think if you navigate that situation correctly, the potential payoffs... Uh, are really immense for the organization as well, right? Like, it, it's it's a high-risk, high-reward scenario. There's no doubt about it. It is, for sure. Uh, but, I mean, I don't see it as high-risk, uh, to be totally Fair. honest with you. Because I think the biggest risk you can take at this point is to return this roster. In my view, my the biggest risk you can take is to believe that this group is good enough. In my, I mean, that to me would be a very i'm i don't want to say courageous i, I think a reckless <laughs> foolhardy, a reckless foolhardy a, a reckless bet right to to think that you can just tweak this roster and get better results um to me that would be the you know that would be the most uh, sort of out there gamble that would be the riskiest possible approach uh because you'd be really gambling hard on 40 games that looked really good and ignoring the 30 games that don't um you know, you'd have to be betting that Thatcher Demko can once again help you be the number one save percentage team five on five in the NHL, which, first of all, no team has repeated. Like, no team has done that two years in a row in the last, in the cap era, frankly, in the, in the, um, in the behind the net era. So, no, not in 15 years has the same team repeated being the number one five on five save percentage team in the NHL. And also, they, if, assuming the Canucks do miss here, they'll be the second team in the NHL to ever lead the league in five on five save percentage. Uh, and miss the playoffs, at least again, in the behind-the-net era in 15 years. Just the second team to do it. And that Florida Panthers team that missed in 2019-10, or 2009-10, they didn't just miss. They were like one of the worst teams in the league. Like, it was a disaster. So, 
you'd be betting that this team is going to get that level of goaltending again, which is, you know, a bet against common sense as far as I'm concerned. And you'd be betting that they can sort of uh, take a significant step forward and match their Boudreaux form over, over 82 games, which I see very little evidence of considering how ephemeral some of the roots of their success under Boudreaux have been, particularly the, the high conversion rate and the league leading save percentage. So uh, you know, that to me would be the most risky move you could do. I, I think the approach where you shed salary, look to shed salary commitments, uh, try and operate in a lightweight kind of way, on the one hand, yes, you create a risk that you take a step back next season, but I think you also preserve the flexibility to rapidly change direction. And And I think when you look at what was accomplished this season and one of the issues with the roster that the Canucks have built for this year... It's not just that they're not good enough. It's also that this team is extremely difficult to disassemble, right? It's going to take real work to do. And even some of what we're talking about, some of my plans to be lightweight, like I don't think you can get off of Oliver ekman Larson, right? Like that's a contract you're now building around for the duration of Pedersen and Hughes's primes, in my opinion, because he's at a high enough level of performance um, and is a quality enough leader that I think you, you want to keep him around. You certainly don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face and pay additional assets to make the type of move that the Coyotes did. So it's like, that's one part of your roster you're now committed to, and it's $7.26 million that I think needs to be managed very carefully in terms of minutes, right? Like, I think they need to find, maybe, and maybe it's Dermot, but they need to find another lefty guy who can kill penalties and reduce his his load over the course of the season particularly if you have playoff ambitions right so it's like that's 7.26 million that's not it's not dead money because Oliver Ekman Larson's still useful but it's inconvenient money it's inefficient money that you have to navigate around in in rebuilding this team um you know I think one of the one of the advantages of of the sorts of uh, approaches or moves that I've kind of laid out here is that it keeps you lightweight. You don't end up committing a ton of long-term money that then ties your hands or that you then have to work around for years and years to come. And that sort of allows you to, you know, if some things work and some things don't, you can kind of move off of it as you go. And that's, uh, again, that's another sort of staple, a staple approach that the really good teams in this league tend to take on. Um, you know, another example you'll find is in Toronto. If you look at, you know, Bunting, Kasha, Kampf worked, Nick Ritchie didn't, Nick Ritchie was sent on, right? So it's like you can reset the deck so long as you're not committing huge amounts of salary and term the way that the Canucks did with Ekman Larson. Uh, we got to get out of here. Again, don't forget uh, Abbotsford Canucks goalie Spencer Martin will be on the People Show with Bick and Randeep at 2.30 today. I will be back on Monday. Drancer, you are taking uh, some well-deserved vacation time, so enjoy your week off, and uh, I'll try to make sure Thanks, we get man. we get our quota of Florida Panthers references in, uh, even when Please you're away do. next week. I'll do my very, very best. Enjoy your week off. I will appreciate that. <laughs> I would appreciate that, and... Uh, this was previously scheduled, but I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back for the what, the tenth or the eleventh, something like something that. Something like that. Uh, and I'll be and I'll be following the Canucks even while I'm of enjoying course. some time in the sun in California. So uh, enjoy the week without me. Uh, well earned by you. yes, yes, <laughs> and uh, and well earned by our audience. But uh, but thanks, man. Be well. Uh, the People Show, Bick Nazar and Randy Janda up next on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty.